You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. This week I saw a photograph of a political protest. And at this protest, there was a man holding up a sign that said, there is no hate like Christian love. And when I saw that, I was very sad. Because I'm sure that this man was holding this sign, at least in part, because at some point he had encountered people who had professed Jesus, who did not treat him in a loving way. And to be sure, that reflects poorly on Christ and his gospel. But I'm also sure that this man was holding this sign, at least in part, because there is something about the Christian message itself which is offensive to him. The idea that Jesus is Lord, that he has the right to tell us how we ought to live, that he has the right to forbid certain conduct as wicked and to impose his fearsome judgments upon those who rebel against his rule. That Jesus declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can be saved but by repentant faith in him. That is a message that offends many people in our culture today, that many people in our world see as shockingly hateful. Because the world tells us today that loving other people means that we should unconditionally affirm and accept whatever they want to do, or at least tolerate it. Telling someone they're wrong, well, that's hateful. And warning them that their conduct is courting God's eternal wrath and calling on them to repent, well, there's no hate quite like that. And so many people today believe that Christian love, the gospel, and the call to repent and believe in Christ is a uniquely pernicious form of hatred. But friends, that is a lie. The truth is that actually Christian love is the purest form of love and actually there is no hate like the world's love because there is nothing so ruinous and destructive like passively tolerating or actively celebrating someone's self-destruction as they indulge in unrepentant sin. Cheering them as they hurdle their way down the broad road to hell. That's not love, friends. That's hateful indifference. And friends, when sin happens within the community of the church, and it will, we cannot respond to sin in here with the hateful indifference of the world out there. We must sincerely love the sinner, and that means that we must confront them. And if they persist in unrepentance, that we must apply the biblical principles of corporate discipline to them for their good. And that's what we're going to see today as we continue our series in Matthew's Gospel. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 35, and we're going to see four points. First, God has a pursuing love for His wayward people. Second, God's church is to have a pursuing love for wayward church members. Third, God's church has been delegated, God-given authority to exercise corporate discipline in its pursuit of wayward church members. 
And fourth, God's people must be characterized by the forgiving love that characterizes God as we restore the repentant. Start with our first point, which is that God has a pursuing love for his wandering people. You've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Last week we started looking at Jesus' fourth big sermon in this book, which is about the community of the local church. And we saw last week that the ethic that must pervade the church is humility. And we saw that we've got to treat one another with humility, which means that we should relate to one another in a loving and generous and hospitable way characterized by service. And we also saw last week that we must not entice each other into sin. And we saw last week three strong warnings that stood behind this instruction. As Jesus pronounced judgment upon this world because it is filled with temptations that sometimes stumble his people into sin. We also saw last week that Jesus warns that unrepentant sin leads to hell. And finally, in verse 10, we saw that God cares deeply about his people. And now today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we're going to begin in verse 12. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice I said last week we ended at verse 10, and today we're starting at verse 12. You might say, well, what happened to verse 11? Over the last few centuries, hundreds of early copies of the New Testament have been discovered, and in these copies, verse 11 is not found in many of the earliest manuscripts. So most modern versions have chosen to omit verse 11, which I think is correct. So that's why we're going to start today in verse 12, as Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. This is a very famous parable of Jesus. And when we think about this parable, we usually think about the context in which it's given in Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables, a parable about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And all of these parables tell the same point, which is that God is pursuing lost sinners, and he is desirous that they should repent. And there is great rejoicing in heaven when one lost person is saved. But now in Matthew 18, Jesus tells the same parable again, but now he uses it to make a slightly different point. And we see that it's different in Jesus' explanation in verse 14. And Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Who are these little ones? Well, last week we saw that Jesus used a child to illustrate the humility that characterizes salvation. And building on that, then in verses 5 through 10, Jesus repeatedly uses the word child or little one to refer to believers. So here in verse 14, when Jesus explains his parable, once again, he's talking about little ones, that is, believers. So Jesus here is not telling this parable to focus on the Father's pursuing love for the lost. Rather, Jesus is telling this parable to describe the Father's pursuing love and his securing love for believers who are straying for, from where they ought to be. The Father will intervene to guard them from perishing. And here's what Jesus says. Here's the parable. A shepherd owns a bunch of sheep. One of them has gone astray. Now, Luke 15, this is different. 
In Luke 15, Jesus says the sheep is lost. Here, Jesus uses a verb that means to be led away or deceived. And this verb is in the passive voice. So someone has deceived a sheep. Someone has lured it away from where it ought to be. So what happens? Well, the shepherd turns his special attention on that sheep, and he pursues it because he wants to deliver it from danger, from the threat of death that it's under because it's straying. The shepherd pursues what is his, and he recovers it and rejoices. And the point is this. The father is like that shepherd. Sometimes believers go astray, right? Sometimes we go astray. Sometimes, like in verse 6 of this chapter, as Jesus describes, we're enticed into sin by someone else. Sometimes, like verses 8 and 9 describe, we entice ourselves because of our own fleshly desires. But either way, when someone who truly belongs to God wanders into sin, God doesn't just look at that and say, well, you know, I've got plenty more where he came from. No. God pursues his people who are straying. He goes on a rescue mission. Listen to Ezekiel 34. God talks about his people who have been misled. This is what he says. I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. Believing friends, this is how God cares for us today when we wander. He doesn't let us go. He pursues us and secures us because we belong to him and he loves us. Now... God's pursuing love may not always be pleasant. Often we experience this in the form of divine discipline. Correction that uses hardship to knock our senses back into our head and get us back on the path we need to be on. And that discipline is an expression of God's love. Hebrews 12 says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are not sons. The experience of receiving God's correction shows that we really belong to Him, that we really are His children. And He disciplines us to pursue us and secure us. You know, many of us treasure these words from John 10. Jesus says, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We love the truth of the eternal security of the believer, right? As well we should. But very often, we neglect the biblical doctrine that stands alongside that truth, which is the doctrine of perseverance. That those who are justified by God will never totally or finally repudiate the faith, but they will persevere to the end and be eternally saved because the gift and calling of God is irrevocable. And yes, for times and seasons, believers may fall away. But all those who truly belong to Christ will ultimately renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ to the end. This is taught in many passages. I'm going to read you three. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3 14. We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
Now, many of us may not like this doctrine, that those who truly belong to Christ will persevere to the end. I think probably because many of us care about people who at one point professed faith in Christ and who today have abandoned that profession, either explicitly or by adopting some life inconsistent with the gospel. And the doctrine of perseverance tells us if they don't eventually turn back to the faith, it shows they weren't saved to begin with. And we desperately want them to be saved, right? And so we desire earnestly that eternal security should be true, but we desire earnestly that perseverance should be false. But friends, these doctrines are inseparable because they are linked. God secures us by pursuing us and preserving us to the end. The Bible tells us you can't have the one without the other. And if that's bad news to you today, if that's discouraging, I would say don't let it be. Because if you have a straying loved one who formerly professed faith, then Matthew 18 tells us if they really did know Christ, God is pursuing them. And God will unfailingly turn them back and renew them to repentance. That's a joyous thought, isn't it? But it's also a joyous thought for those of us who belong to Christ. Because as the song says, we are so prone to wander, aren't we? We know the sins we battle with and the sins that defeat us. And yet these verses tell us God is never going to stop loving and pursuing us either if we belong to him. Because in the end, our salvation is not secured by us. It's not secured by the measure of our obedience or the perfection of our repentance. If it were, we would all be lost. Our salvation is secured by Christ alone. And he is a faithful savior. He is a good shepherd. And he will unfailingly save all those who the Father has given to him. All right, but we come now to our second point. And don't worry, the second point's about 80% of the remaining sermon. So uh, the second point is that God's church is to have a pursuing love for its wayward members. Okay, so God pursues his wandering people. That's a precious truth. But it's also got practical implications for us, individually and corporately. Because one of the most important principles that guides Christian living is that we are called to reflect and imitate God. We see this in passages like 1 Peter 1. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Or Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, of course, we can't imitate some of God's attributes, right? We can't be omniscient. We can't be omnipotent. But we must try to imitate his moral attributes his holiness, and his love. And that means that just as he has a pursuing love, we must have a pursuing love for unbelievers and also for wayward believers. The New Testament's clear about this. We must pursue brothers and sisters who have strayed after sin. Listen to the last two verses in the book of James. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Listen to this. Jude 23 says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's got individual application for many of us here today. Again, because many of us are worried about loved ones who have wandered from the faith. And we may pray for these loved ones. But I wonder, are we willing to talk to them? Are we willing to confront them? Oh yes, we may pray for the Spirit to bring them conviction. But I fear that very often we ignore the biblical truth. 
that God's Spirit ordinarily works through God's people speaking God's Word. We hope that God would send them some other believer who can reach them, overlooking the fact that we are the believer whom God has put in their lives. Friends, we must pursue the lost. And this may be painful, and we may be rejected. But Jesus said back in chapter 10, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And yet God still tells us to pursue the wayward. But this obligation to pursue the wayward is not only individual, it's also the obligation of the local church. And as Jesus continues his sermon now, he tells us how his church is to reflect the Father's pursuing love, as he tells us how we should pursue a wayward believer who is a member of our local church. And what Jesus describes here is a process of up to four steps. Now, this is not the only such process we find described in the New Testament. Titus 3 describes a three-step process for dealing with a believer who is uh, guilty of stirring up division. 1 Corinthians 5 prescribes a one-step process for dealing with a believer or a purported believer who commits a sin that's so outrageous that it discredits the church before the unbelieving world. But what we're going to look at here, we might say, is the ordinary process. This is ordinarily how we should deal with things if we've got to confront a brother or sister who is falling into sin. And here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 15. In the ESV, this reads, If your brother sins against you. Now, I've got to tell you, here's another place where the Bible translations will vary. Some of your Bibles will say, as the ESV does, if your brother sins against you. Others are just going to say, if your brother sins. Here, the early copies differ quite a bit. Uh, having looked at the evidence, I think it is more probable that the original text was, if your brother sins, than if your brother sins against you. So what that means, if you are aware of a brother or sister, of a person who is claiming the name of Christ, if you're aware that they have sinned, and especially if you're a member of the same church they are, here or somewhere else, then this is what you've got to do, Jesus says. Verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, get really angry at the person inwardly, and then when you see them, put on a happy face and pretend everything's okay. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, gossip about it to everybody that you meet. He doesn't say, publicly denounce him. He doesn't say, take it to the church elders and tell them to deal with it. No, he says, if you know it, you go. And you keep it private between you and the wayward believer. But speak to this sinning brother or sister. Now, what are you to say? Well, the Greek verb translated tell here means something like expose or convince or reprove. So this means you've got to tell the person, I think you've sinned, and they might already know that, but they might not be aware of it. And in that case, you might have to do a bit of explaining or convincing. Now, and this is critical, friends, we must not do this in a high-handed or arrogant way. We are not the avengers of sin. God says vengeance is mine. We've got to remember last week we saw the central ethic of the local church is humility. And Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So this must be a loving appeal. But why should we do this? You know, confronting someone just seems so unloving, doesn't it? 
Oftentimes, people who want to avoid this command will quote Proverbs 17.9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. As though somehow this proverb contradicts and negates the command here in Matthew 18. Believing, friends, that's not how we handle the scriptures. We don't take one proverb and hold it up and against the rest of the Bible. And we cannot take one general rule about life from the Old Testament and use it to negate a specific command from Christ about how his church is to function. And by the way, the very next verse in Proverbs says, rebuke is good for helping a man of understanding. No, friends, reproof is an act of great love because sin kills Sin destroys churches and families and the lives of people who haven't committed that sin. And it can destroy the life of the sinner here and now. And sin can lead that sinner to eternal hell. And to the extent to which we look at these commands and say, well, this is so extreme. This is so unloving. Friend, I want to tell you that is the extent to which you have bought into the world's lies and you have minimized the awfulness of sin. Because true love warns. That's why Jesus warned about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. That's why Jesus warned in verses 8 and 9 that unrepentant sin leads to hell. Either we believe Jesus about that or we don't. And if we do, and if we care at all about the other people who are sitting next to us here, if we see sin in their lives, we must talk about it with them. That is what the Lord Jesus says. Now, what happens after we confront someone about a sin that we think they have committed? Well, three things can happen. First, we might talk to them and figure out a sin has not been committed, that our concern was unfounded, and that's a great outcome, right? Praise God if that happens. Um, and if someone comes to you and says, I think you've sinned, and you say, I don't think I have, and you convince them that you haven't, don't be angry at them. Be thankful. That's someone that cares enough about you that they were really worried about your soul, right? But, but if you figure out there's no sin, that's the end of the matter. Or you might talk to them about sin and they say, hey, you're right. I've blown it. I need to confess this to God. I need to turn away from this. And if that's the case, praise God, right? If your brother confesses his sin to God and turns from it, that's what you're after. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You have helped to rescue him from a dangerous path he was on. You have been an instrument in the hands of God, in his pursuing love towards that brother or sister. And if that's the case, that's the end of the matter. And it concludes privately. But a third option exists. The conversation may confirm in your mind that sin has occurred. And yet your brother or sister says, so what? I don't need to change. And in that case alone, then we proceed to step two of the process. I want to be clear about this. Just because you've had one conversation that wasn't fruitful in your judgment doesn't mean that it's necessarily time to move on to step two. Um, the point of this process is not to hurry to the conclusion and say, I checked all the boxes. The point of the process is to plead with your brother or sister and win them. So be patient. Repeatedly urge them. I think step one could take months or even years at times, depending on how they respond. Only go to the next step. When it becomes clear they are not willing to listen to what you have to say, when you are not getting anywhere anymore, Verse 16, but Jesus tells us, here's step two, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy 19, 
which sets the evidentiary standard for Old Testament trials. And the point was, you've got to have a number of witnesses to convict someone. Now, why does Jesus quote this here? Because we're going to see in a minute, if step two doesn't work, we're going to wind up with something that looks a good deal more like a court proceeding, where witnesses will be required. So what exactly are these witnesses to be witnessing? Are they supposed to be witnessing the sin itself? Or are they merely supposed to witness your attempt to confront someone about their sin? This is a tough question, but I think that the witnesses are supposed to bear witness to the confrontation, that they do not actually have to be witnesses of the underlying offense. And here's why. Because Jesus here still wants the scope of the confrontation to be limited. It's still not supposed to be a public matter. This is still a private intervention. And if Jesus here is requiring you to produce witnesses who can testify to the underlying sin, unless that sin was committed in public, you would have no way of finding witnesses to this without asking around. Oh, I think Ben did this to me. Did Ben do that to you? Oh, he didn't. Oh, I'm going to ask Mason over here, right? And suddenly, what was supposed to be a private matter, you're gossiping about openly with your charge. That, that cannot be what Jesus has in mind here. So I think the witnesses are primarily to bear witness to the confrontation. Now we might ask, is there any value here in having witnesses to only a confrontation if they haven't seen the underlying sin? And I would say yes. Because from my own experience in confronting people about sin and, and the experience of many other pastors, I'll tell you that, that most of the time when you do this and someone is guilty of unrepentant sin, they're basically going to admit to the substance of it. Um, you know, we, we think of people as like, you know, clever criminals on TV. That's not how it works. Most of the time people say, yeah, I did it, and it's not a big deal. And if you've got the witnesses to see that, that is sufficient to substantiate the charge. So step two is a repetition of the private confrontation, but this time with these additional witnesses. Now, what I'm going to say next is not biblically required, but I just think it's prudent. If you wind up in this situation of confronting a brother or sister in sin, and you're at step two, I would urge you to ask one or two of the church elders to serve as your witnesses. First, because it's just good that you run your charge by somebody else to see if it's legitimate. A few years ago, a pastor friend of mine called me, and he said he had a problem in his church. A lady was trying to use this process to discipline other women in the church who were not actually dressed immodestly, but she had her own legalistic standards she wanted to impose on people. She needed the elders of her church to step in and say, that's not how this works. Okay, so involving the elders can protect you against making a big mistake. But second, if you're right, if a sin has occurred, and if your appeal in step two is not heeded, Jesus is about to say the next step means you've got to tell it to the church. And the elders are going to be involved then, so it's best to get them involved at an early stage. Now again, step two can have three possible outcomes. First, you could all agree there's no sin, and again, that would be the end of the process. Second, the wayward believer might admit he's in sin and, and confess it and turn from it. And that's a great outcome, and that would be the end of the process. But third, if you and your witnesses remain convinced that the wayward believer is in sin, and he remains convinced he doesn't need to change a thing, in that case alone, we proceed to step three. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, that is if step two fails, tell it to the church. Now, notice that Jesus presupposes this process here is happening within one local congregation. If that's not the case, if you're trying to do this on someone that goes to another church, it's going to be difficult to ever get beyond step two. But if that happens to you, come talk to the elders and we'll see if we can help. 
Many churches often interpret step three as the end of the process, but that's incorrect. Just keep looking in verse 17. Jesus continues by saying, and if he refuses to listen even to the church. So there's a step beyond this one. But what this third step entails is the church becomes publicly aware of the unrepentant sin. Now, if the church leaders are not involved before, they certainly got to be involved now, right? And at this church, we practice this step at our members' meeting. This is not fun stuff, but it's got to be done. The elders get up in front of the church members, and we tell the members what's happened. Not in sordid detail, but with enough clarity so that the members know sin has actually happened and that this process has been followed. And then the elders will ask the members to apply social pressure to the wayward believer. That when you encounter them, you don't just chat about the weather or football. You call them to repent. You also confront them. And friends, this is not an optional part of the process. If the church has to publicly discipline someone by telling their sin to the congregation as Jesus commands, every individual member is under an obligation to support the church's discipline in that. Even if the disciplined person is your best friend even if it's a family member. You need to have solidarity with God and God's word and God's people for the sake of the wandering believer and calling them to repent as an act of love. There's two ways this third step can go. Either they may finally acknowledge their sin and turn from it, in which case at the next member's meeting, the elders are going to get up and rejoice and say, hey, our brother has, has repented, this process is over. Or they may refuse to listen even to the church. And in that case alone, we proceed to step four. Look at the end of verse 17. Jesus says, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's that mean? Some people today quote this verse, and then they say, Well, you know, Jesus dined with tax collectors. Jesus healed Gentiles. So Jesus is okay with these two groups, and what that means is we should just receive the unrepentant person back into the church and pretend like nothing has happened. Okay, friends, that is total nonsense. Because as we have seen, this process is an escalating process. And this is the last step. So context dictates this should be even more intense than telling their sin to the church. Okay, but what does this entail? Well, remember that first century, or the the disciples were first century Jews. And in first century Judaism, Gentiles didn't have God's law. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors who were stealing from their people and giving money to Rome. These guys were viewed as outside the community of faith because of their sin. And that's the idea here, too. In this final step, a person is excommunicated. That is, they are put outside of the church. Now, many Protestants don't like this term, excommunication. Because Roman Catholicism says when they excommunicate you, they can sentence you to hell. That is not what we're saying. That is not biblical. Biblical excommunication involves ending someone's church membership... And it means that we as a church are saying to them, your life is giving evidence that you are not a believer. There is something profoundly wrong in your life because you refuse to acknowledge and turn away from your sin after being confronted by a brother, after being confronted by a group of brothers, after being confronted by the entire church. That is very abnormal for a true believer. And we can no longer assign credence to your profession of faith. That's what excommunication says. Now, you might say, wow, does a church have the authority to say that to someone? We're going to see in just a minute, it most certainly does. 
But when we excommunicate someone, that means sorrowfully they are no longer a part of the church's community. Depending on the circumstances, they may not be allowed to attend services. They will certainly be barred from taking communion and from the church's social activities. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 about someone under this penalty, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now, I'm not saying we shun them and pretend they're not in the room with us if they are. No. But it means that when we encounter them, things are different. We're not making polite small talk. We're not saying, oh, please pray over a meal. You know, you're such a godly person. No. When we talk to them, we need to be urging them to repent. And again, that is not just something for the leaders to do. That is what the members of the church are to do. If you are a member of this church, that is part of what it means to be our, in our community. That you will assist in bringing this biblical godly pressure to bear on someone who has been excommunicated. If God forbid we have to do this. For the sake of their soul until they repent. Okay, one more question here. How does excommunication take place? Is this something I can do unilaterally as the pastoral staff? Do our elders have the authority to do this by ourselves? No. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This command is given to the whole church. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells the church to lift someone's excommunication, and he says, the punishment by the majority is enough. It sounds like the members of the church are to take a vote to enact excommunication. So this doesn't just fall on some of us. This falls on all of us. We all have a responsibility in this, should this be sadly necessary. Now, again, you might say, man, this sounds really harsh. It sounds so unreasonable. But friends, if that's where you're at, I warn you, you're believing a lie that sin really isn't dangerous and that continuing in unrepentant sin, despite the clear testimony of God's word and multiple appeals from brothers or sisters, is a normal thing in the Christian life. Friend, if you believe that today, I want to say to you, you have a wrong notion of conversion and the Christian life. Because the faith that saves us is repentant faith. Our whole lives are to be lives of repentance. We're not going to be perfect. But what happens when we sin? Do we hate our sin? Do we war against our sin? Or do we say, oh, yeah, that's just who I am? What's Jesus say in John 10? Right before all those great verses about eternal security. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 1 John 2 says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Friends, normal Christian living should have a positive regard for God's word and a negative view towards sin. And if we just say, oh, I, I give up, I, I'm going to be a thieving Christian, or I'm going to be a murdering Christian, or I'm going to be a uh, homosexual practicing Christian, or whatever, we want to stick on the front end of Christian, and it's our sin. Friends, that is not normal. And I know this sounds unpleasant, but Jesus commands it. And Colossians 1.18 says he's the head of the church. We need to believe and obey Jesus. He knows better than we do. He loves better than we do. And we've got to trust him. 
Moreover, there's other reasons we've got to do this. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? No, yeast permeates dough and transforms it. Unrepentant, unchecked sin does that in a church. It corrupts a church. It destroys our public witness. Friends, we can't allow that. Moreover, we've got to do this because we're really worried about the person that we're intervening in their life. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Do this in the hope that this man will be saved in the day of the Lord. He might have claimed to be a brother, but his actions suggested he wasn't. Because unrepentant sin leads to hell. And so, friends, when we encounter that in the church, for the good of our wayward friends, we must follow Jesus' command here to try to reach them, to try to bring them to their senses. And, friends, I want to tell you this. If we do this in a loving way, really intending the sinner's good, this is something that God can and will use to rescue them and pursue them. So we must exercise this pursuing love of the wayward. All right, come now to our third point, which is that God's church has been delegated, God-given authority to exercise discipline in its pursuit of wayward members. Maybe you've heard this and you think, wait, people here might confront me about my sin. Why should I stand for that? I'm an American, you know, and there's other churches down the street, and if anybody tries that stuff with me here, I'm going to leave. You know, this is just a voluntary association after all. It's like a garden club or a chess club. Who does this church think it is? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus said this before back in chapter 16 when he told Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose. Now, we said there that while initially these words sound like Peter has been given the ability to bend heaven and earth to his will, that is not what this means. The Greek is clear here that what Peter is empowered to do is to declare on earth what has already been decreed in heaven. So Peter was given the authority to authoritatively declare what God has said. And now what Jesus said to Peter, he says to the church across the ages. Friends, Jesus gives us, all local churches, including Redeemer Bible Church, the power to authoritatively declare what the Scripture says and to apply it to our lives. That's what we do every week when somebody gets up here to preach. Whether it's me or Daniel or Joe or Mason, anybody. Right? That isn't use of the keys of the kingdom. We are declaring, binding, and loosing in line with God's word. Church discipline is another act in line with that. Jesus has entrusted us, not just the church leaders, but the church, all of its members, to authoritatively use the keys of the kingdom to declare what is in line with God's word and what is not. To say what is a normal Christian life and what is not. To say who is a part of the church and who is not. And not only does Jesus delegate this authority to us, but he promises to stand behind our decisions. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We often hear these verses quoted at prayer meetings. Friends, these verses are given in the context of church discipline. This is not just a general promise that if a few of us get together and pray to Jesus, he'll do whatever we ask. No, these verses are saying that Jesus has delegated his authority, his keys, even to the smallest congregation, even to a church of two or three. 
Even in a tiny congregation like that, Jesus says, where they agree about anything in his name, the Father and the Son are with them, standing among them, standing behind them in their action. Now, what is the anything Jesus is talking about here? Is this any prayer request? No, the Greek word here is pragma, and pragma is often used to speak about judicial decisions. So I think the best way to understand this is when the church undertakes an action in discipline, provided that decision is scriptural, Jesus and the Father back it 100%. And as we not just act in discipline, but as we pray about it, as we plead with God for the repentance of the sinner, Jesus and the Father will hear our prayer. And if that prayer is in line with the will of God, it will be answered. So God has given the local church authority to utilize these tools uh, to correct its wayward members. But we come now to our last point. And here we see that God's church is to show the forgiving love that characterizes God in restoring the repentant. It's hard to confront. It's hard to excommunicate. But in some ways, I think the, the final thing Jesus talks about here is the hardest part of the whole thing. And that is forgiveness and restoration. Why is forgiveness so hard? Because when you confront someone about their sin, you can get so frustrated because of hard-heartedness. When you see the damage caused by someone's sin, it can make you angry. And over time, that can harden your heart. And you can forget that what you really want for the sinner is for them to repent and to forgive them and be restored to them. We can just start wishing they just go away and get what's coming to them. But Jesus says we must never have that attitude because if we have been forgiven by God, then we must be quick to forgive one another. Look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? The Pharisees said you had to forgive three. So Peter here probably thinks he's being pretty generous because seven's more than you know, two times three. But look at Jesus' answer, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter's made a category mistake. Jesus is thinking about this in a totally different way. And Jesus demonstrates this by picking a much bigger number. Could mean 77 times or 70 times seven times. And the point isn't that we sit there and keep a running tally up to 490 and say, oh, I, I, now I get to, to get rid of you. No. The point is that, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, we don't keep a record of wrongdoing. We're not waiting around for an opportunity to say, that's it, I'm done with you. No, friends, those who are fully forgiven by God for all of our sins must be ready to fully forgive others for all the wrongs they've done against us, even repeated wrongs. Look at verse 23. Jesus is going to tell a parable now. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So this king has a slave, which was common in the ancient world, and somehow this slave has gotten massively in debt to him. The, the number Jesus uses here is something like 11 times the entire tax revenue of Judea and Galilee. It's an enormous sum. If we applied that to, like, Texas, 11 times what the feds get from Texas, this would be $2.87 trillion. That's a big debt, right? You really need debt consolidation if you've got $2.87 trillion. Okay, so that's what this slave owed his king. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. There wasn't debt protection back then. If you were in debt, you could go to prison. If you were a slave like this fellow, you could be sold. And here this king says, I'm going to make you lose everything. Massive loss because you're in debt to me and can't pay. Verse 26, 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The prospect of total loss, the, this man pleads for the king's mercy and he receives it because the king has compassion, forgives his debt. Could you imagine that? Being three trillion in debt, in an instant it's gone. Hearing your family is going to be sold, in an instant it's gone. That's reason to celebrate, right? How's he celebrate? Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, a hundred denarii is not a small amount of money. It's about three months of wages for the average worker. In Texas, this would be like $22,000. And that's a lot of money. But compared to what we just talked about, it's like nothing. It's literally more than a million times less debt. And this fellow who's just been forgiven one million times more is unwilling to forgive the man that owes him one million times less. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The unforgiving slave's debtor here uses the same language he had used to appeal to the king. But the unforgiving slave has a hard heart. He will not show mercy. He sends his debtor to prison. But this act draws attention. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. In Greek, this actually means torturers, until he should pay all his debt. The king is disgusted by this man's unforgiving attitude to the extent that he cancels his gracious offer to forgive the first debt. And he sends this man to a horrible fate, torture until he can pay off a debt that can never be repaid. And Jesus now explains it, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I've got to tell you, this is tough for me. I've, I've battled bitterness over some things for a long time. But friends, the truth is, we who want God's forgiveness for all of our sins must be willing to forgive others for their offenses against us. Because we each, like the unforgiving slave in this parable, owed a debt that we could not pay. Because of our sin, we were staring down the barrel of the horrors of hell. And yet God has graciously pursued us and given us his son. And Jesus lived the perfect life we failed to live. He died the death we deserve. And he offers to credit all of that to our account to pay this unpayable debt. Friend, I want to say to you today, if you have never come to Christ, you need to receive God's grace through repentant faith alone in Christ alone. You need to be saved or else you are on a collision course with the wrath of God. But friends, if we have received God's forgiveness through the gospel, we cannot forget how much we owed, how much we've been forgiven. And as God's forgiven people, we must imitate God and forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus taught us to pray that back in chapter 6, right? And more than that, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiven people must forgive. Because Jesus says in Luke 7, those who are forgiven much, love much. And so those who don't love others through forgiveness show that they have not been forgiven by God. Friends, we must be forgiving people. And so corporately, what that means is that when we practice church discipline, and someone turns from their, their sin at any stage in the process and seeks God's forgiveness and seeks restoration with us, we've got to be quick to forgive that person and restore them. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be consequences. right? If someone steals from the church, we're not going to say, oh, it's time for you to go back to being church treasurer, right? But restoration to church membership, to the church community, absolutely we've got to do that. And individually, when we suffer offenses, and we're going to in this life, we must stand ready to forgive. It may be that the person who has wronged us doesn't want our forgiveness, that they're unrepentant. It's unfortunate, but it happens. And where that happens, I think we've got to let go of our desire for vengeance. We've got to give it to God. And we've got to be willing to reconcile with them and forgive them should they change their mind. And you know, we can do that well if we remember what Jesus said back in chapter 5. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Praying earnestly for the good of those who have wronged us will keep us humble and ready to forgive as the opportunity arises. And that's where we've got to be. Because Christ has forgiven us so much by his amazing grace, by what is truly the greatest of all loves. So to conclude today, we've seen that God has a pursuing love, a securing love, a forgiving love. God's love is the greatest love. And praise him for that. And I want to say to you today, if you are in unrepentant sin, repent. Do not mistake God's patience for God not caring. This is an opportunity to repent, his, his patience. And friends, as God's church, we must have a robust pursuing love that includes a willingness to confront and, where necessary, discipline. And we must have a forgiving love that is quick to show mercy as we have received mercy. May God grant us the wisdom to understand these commands. May God grant us true love for one another. And may God grant us to, uh, the courage to obey Jesus' command in Luke 17. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him.